Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kennig. Well, Brandon, uh, anything happened this week? Anything worth uh, anything worth talking about? Has your, uh, uh, your, uh, your news feed been filled with a tiny with news story? Yeah, the uh, FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago, just a blip on the radar. So it would almost be in, to find a, a starting point on this story is difficult. We could we can go through the chronology and all of that of where we stand right now here on on Sunday afternoon, but just. Having a couple of days to digest all of this, just what sticks out of your mind as kind of the, the top line story of this entire chapter of, of the Trump saga, the raid on, on Mar-a-Lago? The complete overreaction <laughs> and hyperventilating by the right in response to this, by Fox News, by OAN, by Newsmax, a lot of the right-wing commentators on talk radio and on uh, and podcasts, they did not even wait to see all the facts. And this was before we even knew what the FBI was looking for, how they had been tipped off, what had been seized. All we knew is that there was a raid. FBI went in to retrieve uh, classified documents that uh, they were led to believe that the president had. And the reaction to that was just, it was unhinged and insane. Basically that this was the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of our Republic. That was one of the things mentioned that all of a sudden you have calls now for the FBI to be defunded or, and, or destroyed, dismantled, the fact that somehow this makes us a banana republic <laughs> and that we're, we're comparing ourselves now to third world countries and failed nation states because we're uh, you know basically holding our elected leaders and formerly elected leaders accountable, which, by the way, those states don't do. They do the opposite. Their leaders yeah. get immunity from being prosecuted for crimes. So that didn't make sense. And, and I feel like it's like upside down world. I mean, it's like everything is the opposite of what they're saying. Yeah in terms of the claims that are being made. Another one is that, imagine if this could happen to the President of the United States, this could happen to you or, or any ordinary American citizen. It's like, hello, this happens to ordinary American citizens every single day of the week. All the time. There are search warrants. And, you know, again, the conspiracies are running wild that, you know, this was something that Biden set into motion. It's connected to the IRS agents, uh, the hiring of the claim of 87,000, which we can get into, which is also... Uh, incorrect. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that they conveniently ignored the fact that when you, uh, when anybody, but particularly the FBI, gets a search warrant in these circumstances, those have to be signed off by a federal judge, uh, and uh, there has to be probable cause to for that to occur. So those are the checks that you have in this process. It's not like the FBI just went in on Correct. a whim. Yeah. And uh, and that gets into some other issues. I know we'll talk about this, but this rhetoric has consequences. The judge in this case, his information had to be yeah. uh, scrapped from uh, the website online for the, the court uh, because he was getting doxxed and because there were all these death threats against him. We actually had an attack against an FBI field office in Cincinnati as a direct result yeah. of the rhetoric on this this issue. And so it's a reminder that lives are at stake and there's so many crazy people out there and diehard loyalists that, again, all they need is that spark to be ignited yeah. and they will run with it. It was the immediacy 
of that that leap to we now live in a, a tyrannical state. We now are the DOJ has become the 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 Gestapo. The the FBI is the KGB. It's like everybody immediately, as soon as this this news hit, there was no examination of let's talk about the I don't know three active criminal investigations that Donald Trump is under right, right. now. Um, the the any number of of things that he did as president that may have spawned this type of activity, it's immediately like this is totally unlawful. This is what happens in a banana republic. This basically shows somehow that every possible critique we've made over the FBI and the DOJ in the last six years was on point, justified, and this is the end of a democracy. And I just didn't. I sat there watching it, thinking. Maybe I'm I'm missing something here. And one of the things I wrote down that that's been hard to to kind of gauge through this entire process this week with this news is the reaction from the right is so far away from from like my reaction and what I would call like a normal reaction. It's right. hard to gauge. Brandon, am I missing something? <laughs> is there something in this? Because we've spent the last couple of weeks debating how far should the DOJ go with with Trump. I think you've been more comfortable going a little bit farther and faster. I've been a little more comfortable with pumping the brakes and, and taking a more deliberate approach. Well, it's all moot now because it, it's a ball rolling downhill at this point. The seal's been cracked. We're we're on our way. So we've seen how the reaction is to a search warrant being executed. So you can imagine how it would be if he's actually indicted or let alone found yeah. guilty. But at the same time, I – you know, and I know that many of these people, especially the talking heads, they know better that this this is yes. intentional to inflame and to have this overzealous reaction to be able so that they can intimidate and and you know it's a form of intimidation and and it's, I don't think it's going to ultimately work. But the idea is to get the FBI and the DOJ to to back off and say, oh look at you know yeah. what we can do. This is only the tip of the iceberg. And Britain, what what is I'm still having a hard time figuring out what is at the core of all of this rage on the right. We'll call it the right media wing of of the Republican Party. It, it feels like this is still about Hillary Clinton and that the Republicans feel that she got a complete pass on what she did in 2016 with handle, mishandling sensitive information and that Comey and the FBI and the DOJ completely walked away from and completely gave her a pass on something that they thought was clearly should be punishable. Is that that that's the best thing that I can come up with? Because the the, the basis of this being unfair is that they'll start citing all these examples, Hillary's emails. There was a dude for the Clinton administration who walked in the archives, stuffed a bunch of papers in his pants, walked out. Sandy Burger. He got yeah. arrested. Petraeus, he got a misdemeanor, I think, conviction when he didn't handle some some documents correctly. So the point that they're making, from what I can piece together, is if you look historically at the people that have been accused or found guilty of mishandling docs, it has never been escalated to this to this level. And the thing that I think people need to keep in mind is let's let's contrast Hillary Clinton with Donald Trump and how the DOJ approached each one of these situations. Yes. The main point here of difference and where these two paths diverge the FBI subpoenaed her email server. She gave them the server. Right. They when, did not have to execute a search That's warrant. right. Yeah. When they gave Trump the subpoena June 3rd for the papers, he didn't give it to him. That 
that's where now your path completely you're on a completely different path than what was happening with Hillary and, and other folks who have been in this same kind of kind of mess. And so that's where you refute claim number one, which is they should have just asked him and he would have handed this over. You go back to January when they uh, did this, as you said, because this the subpoenas actually go back further this year, and they were not given all the information they asked for. And so that's why we're at where we are today, because there, it was a refusal refusal to comply with a subpoena yeah. request. So the first freak out is by the right of, oh, my God, this is this is unprecedented. This is a sign that that Joe Biden is officially and Merrick Garland are after Trump. And that that has this 24 ish, 48 ish hour cycle. Garland comes out and basically says, hey, I signed off on this. This was on me. Stop threatening the agents. Then he does leak to the Washington Post that this is about nuclear documents. This is where the story takes another bend and another turn. Yeah. I have multiple people who have texted me outlandish fantasies about what type of nuclear information Trump could have. And I want to run a few of these past you, and you tell me if these, these make sense. Okay. Why would anybody steal the plans for a nuclear bomb? A nuclear nuclear bombs are what eighty five years old. If you can get the uranium, they're pretty easy to make. Right. I don't. Do you think this is Trump has a has a a blueprint to a bomb or a missile that he smuggled out out of the White House? No, and I think no. it's 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 definitely easy to focus on that because I think that's the worst case scenario that people's well, minds gravitate it, to. It's the most Hollywood case right. that we've all seen played out in a film. But I mean, and so the fact of the matter is that you could have documents that uh, describe either nuclear capabilities or highlight them to some degree that are not, you know, the details of actually how to create or to execute a nuclear weapon. But I think what's most intriguing here is because we're able to see the details now of, you know, uh, well, I should say the, we're able to see what was seized, right, in the classification level. So some of this had top secret classification and then the classification that's even above top secret. That's what's most interesting to me. Regardless of what it is, the fact that we're dealing with classification levels that are that severe like i mean you i mean we're talking about the upper echelon of how things are classified regardless of what it is like it's it's important and it's critical that they get this back because in the wrong hands that could be um really detrimental and so i'm more interested in the notion or fascinated with the idea is why did trump take these in the first place what was his motivation. And there's a number of things. It could be that he's delusional enough to think that he still is the president and will be in the White House again fairly soon. So this is his way of being able to assert control and being able to, because there's been little ways that he's done that throughout. If you notice, his uh, loyalists still refer to him as President Trump. They never say former sure. president. There's this idea that you have to refer to him as president, uh, which really kind of ticked me off when they said this has never happened to the president before, and I want to say he's not the president anymore. It's, he's he's a private yeah. citizen. He's a former president. And then there's the fact that he has actually been uh, noted for, he continues um, in breach of ethics conduct to uh, still utilize the presidential seal. Um, Um, on his stationary, everything. You're not supposed to when you're no longer the president. You're not supposed to go around and have it on your podiums. He's the first person in living history that has done that and continues to do that. So there's this delusional mindset that maybe he, it's a way of asserting just in those other ways that he's still president. But then my mind also goes to the fact is, could this be leverage with foreign powers or even non-state actors, you know, in terms of financial quid pro quo? Why would the Saudis need to buy 
a plan for a missile or a weapon. They just buy the weapon. Right. They have all the money. If they truly wanted this technology, they would just buy a company or a it, college or people, and they would get this technology. Right, and that's why I, like, I don't think it's a plan. But if there's intelligence information of any kind sure. that's significant, sure. like, you know, that's where, and, you know, and not necessarily about nuclear weapons themselves, but about, you know, our capabilities or where we store them or, I mean, any number of things, that's information that can be leveraged so in what, some way. What these documents are matter a lot, I think, in the in the court of public opinion. What they are, what they pertain to, I think is going to make a huge difference on how far uh, any law enforcement entity feels pushing this case forward. Because if these are if these are highly sensitive documents that the American people would recognize are highly sensitive, past their classification, I think you have a case. If these are documents that the what isn't that impactive, I think a lot of that falls away. I, I know that's not right, and, and the classification of the docs really has nothing to do with, for example, did he violate the espionage, not act or not. Right. But just for a matter of practicality moving forward, if these are not docs that shock the American people that he would have and refuse to give back, then this isn't viable moving forward. But you, how you've accomplished what you want to do, and that's it. But how are we ever to know what is actually in those docs? We won't. I mean, so why I mean, do, how do we you... need to know if they're that top secret? I've well, right. I agree. To, yeah, we're not going to know. What we're not going they to are. know. But but again, I think that's part of the case is having to make that because we're we're never going to know the details of exactly what's in it. Yeah. And so there's still the argument to be made that uh, the part of the reason we can't know what's in it is because this is highly classified. The you know top secret you know, most secure information possible. I mean, highest classification level possible in terms of some of these boxes. And that was what Hillary had on her email server, too. She right. had the same classification of, of docs as, as Trump did. Once you get past the what, and I think the what matters a lot, then there's the why, like you said. Yeah. Why did he do this? He could just be completely delusional. If, if I had to guess, it would be he still thinks he's president. Like you said, he likes these – some of these docs, he's cool. He likes to show them around. It just makes him feel important having these docs. It could be that, that simple of why he has them. I, I don't think there's a plot to sell nuclear secrets to the Saudis that Trump is facilitating through these documents. Well, no, but but again, I would have put it past him to keep on to it as or retain it as collateral um, for future, uh, you know, types of uh, kind of business trading, uh, and, and more so in the realm of you know business because he has many outstanding loans, he has debts that need to be paid off, and it could be something of a classification level that doesn't necessarily re relate to nuclear, but has high classification level sure. because of it being sensitive intel, that he could, you know, be willing to trade or sell for whatever purpose, you know, to help himself financially. I think it's much, much, much more probable that Trump knows the docs are cool, people will be impressed by him, and he whips them around at Mar-a-Lago Mar during cocktail parties to look awesome. But, but you I can't mean, do that. I, mean, I get just... that. But both are illegal. <laughs> right. But one is a, a massive international plot with Trump as yeah. a James Bond villain, and one is Trump as an idiot. I will always defer to Trump's just an idiot. He, he's a 12-year-old boy who found some cool things that he shows around it at parties at his house, I believe, is probably what he's doing. Well, we have parts. plenty of evidence during his presidency to point to that. Look at how much uh, time absolutely. he spent on redesigning Air Force One and the color scheme, and he would get stuck in these nuanced details of anything to make himself look yeah. bigger or better. I, 
we we seen we've seen Trump at his James Bond villainous most. That's the 2020 election. Right. There was no there was no um, sophisticated plot. That was all blood force trauma with two morons with uh, Giuliani and that other chick Powell leading the pack. Trump has never showed this level of sophistication in anything he's ever done. You had, you had others, I think, behind the scenes that had more sophistication, like John Eastman, who were really sure. looking at the playing the the game, the gamesmanship of really trying to look at the how to make the pieces fall with the electoral college. But but yeah, Trump himself isn't that savvy. No. I mean, he relies on other people and executing anything that's going to keep him in power. And it seemed like on like Thursday, the somewhere this week, later in the week, it turned to, okay, we're not we're not we're not framing this anymore in the media on the Republican side as a threat to democracy. We, we have a certain crowd that's just going to keep banging that drum. Then it came into, well, this isn't really bad. This is what always happens with Trump. The Republicans pivot to he probably did it or he did something close to what people are saying. And yes, it's bad, but it's not that bad. And we can make up any number of excuses to why he did it or point to dozens of people on the other side that have done the exact same thing. So it seems like everybody just punted back to the comfortable position. Okay, if Trump did have those docs, he he magically blessed them and declassified them. That's one which thing. You, yeah, which you can't do. So but yeah. <laughs> we're right back to where we've always been with Trump. Everybody kind of agrees. Even the Republicans believe that he probably did something wrong, but you can't prove it was that bad, and we're just going to move along like nothing happened. I do think there's been a somewhat subtle change with the unsealing of the search warrant, so but Garland doing that so that you know it was available to the news media now to anybody, um, all of us who want to see that, it did change the calculus. Uh, you had some Republicans step back. They're just over-the-top Sure. Defense of Trump. I think it was the uh, uh, what's the conservative group in the House, not the Republican Study Committee, but the the Freedom Caucus. Freedom Caucus. They actually had a meeting scheduled yeah. for Friday, which they canceled after the search warrant was unsealed, which was going to be this big vociferous defense of Trump. So you've started to see wrinkles in that, and a, and, and a, some Republicans here and there who's now have gone from this is outrageous to we need to wait and see and let all the facts come out. So there's been a subtle shift, I think, just based on the nature of seeing the search warrant and why they went in that you know the the concern here wasn't just over any documents it was over specific classification of documents and a tip off um that some had to do with nuclear the other thing too that we did we have a touched upon is uh somebody tipped the fbi off somebody within mar-a-lago Trump who thinks is, it was melania <laughs> he's come out and said he, he thinks did it was Kushner oh my gosh or, i didn't see this yeah, yeah he has come out and said it's a distinct possibility that milana or melania or Kushner turned me in Wow. See, yeah. that's news that I missed. But it has to be someone who's close to him, who knows Mar-a-Lago from the inside, who would know where this stuff is retained and kept. So that's the other wrinkle to this, that it's somebody within Trump uh, MAGA world who yeah. came to the FBI. I, I just tried to remind people we are running the same tread we've run with Trump dozens of times while he was president. And the first question you have to ask yourself, I think, when you're on the Democratic side of this, when assessing what is this going to do to Trump politically, what does this mean for the Republican Party moving forward, and, and how are we going to capitalize it? The first thing is that you've had Trump in these exact same crosshairs a dozen times. You've never got him. There is no one kill shot that takes this man down because the entire Republican Party, it, 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 it's like the in scene in um, Ender's Game. 
there's so many layers around him to, of, of, of protection. No shot, single shot is going to get through him. So you just said it. We're probably never going to know what these docs are unless there is clear evidence of his intent to do something criminally with him. I don't think there's much to be made of this. I, I, Simple I, possession of those docs is not going to warrant them filing an indictment. But I, I think there's a how. history there of failing to, ret- uh, to turn those over and the fact that Trump's attorney signed off and said these were all the docs in his possession you his know, months ago. His attorney might be in trouble. And we know now that that wasn't the case. I don't know. I feel like this is uh, less gray than trying to charge Trump with uh, January 6th. Yeah, trying sure. to stay in power, you know, in terms of trying to find something to charge him with, this is much more cut and dry. So I do think if something, if he's going to be charged with something and be held accountable, this seems to be much more like the line in the sand than, you know, what we've been looking at up until now. Brendan, you've been around high level professional politicians, congressmen, senators, you've worked on the staff of, of a senator, you've been around kind of people in this, in this position. So politically, this is being described as a windfall for Trump, that this is a, a, a because the FBI went through with this action, it will be seen as so egregious and so horrible for Trump personally and for the country a, a, as, a, as a nation that everybody has closed ranks around Donald Trump. Even people that are obviously running for, for president, your Ted Cruz's, your, your Tim Scott, they're not, they're kind of holding their, their, their powder. But most people, the consensus has been, this has helped Trump in, in his bid for reelection. Mike Huckabee has gone as far as saying, call off the primary, give it to him now, let's start running. Brandon, what is the, what, how did Trump's political calculations change because of this? This is something the right's been banging on all week. I just don't. I just don't see this. I, I don't either. And so, the refrain I keep hearing is this makes it much more likely that he's going to announce his candidacy yeah. before the midterms. But I felt like that was already fairly likely anyway from the noise we were yeah. hearing. Uh, so maybe it's been moved up to early October now instead of like days before the November <laughs> election. I don't know. But I don't know that it has changed the calculus in terms of his support. I, he, in terms of his diehard supporters, it may have made them even more aggressively supportive of his bid to the point that they're going to be following much more closely than they would have. I think what remains to be seen is that those people who were on the margin who voted for him last time but have been very ambivalent about him since then, the polling has shown that with the January 6th committee hearings, his support has softened among some of those marginal voters that were in his court. That is where I'd like to – I think we need more time to see how they react to this. I've seen only one poll that's been out since all this happened where there's 49% of Americans believe that uh, he's uh, had and knew that he had documents that were classified and detrimental to our security. 37% think that this has been a sham and is bogus, and then you have 12 or 13% that are unsure. But I I don't know. I think it takes the support that he had, and it just makes it much more – zealous yeah. and, and and much more aggressive. But I don't know that it's really going to change people from one side to the next. I think that's baked in. I, I really didn't hear anybody's analysis that said that. Tell me why the serving of this warrant would make more suburban white moms vote for Trump. And I haven't heard anybody talk about Everybody loves to talk about what Trump has gained, his right. gain in Hispanic, 
how he held serve with with female voters, yeah. how he has increased his margins with African American men. Yeah. Nobody talks about the five percent of white men that left him. Yes, and. The 5% of white men that left him really don't like the January 6th no. committee and probably really don't like this. So other than the hardcore base, where is the political advantage at? I and don't I've understand. Heard, I've heard no pundit explain it to me. Well, I think the attempt to gain a political advantage is with that line of attack saying if this could happen to him, this could happen to you. But I don't see what that does resonating. That mean? Like what? I mean, I, I think most people understand and hear about search warrants being executed on a daily basis in their towns, their communities, their sure. you know metropolitan areas. So it would presume to to think that somehow people are oblivious to this, and this is the first time they've seen this occur. Ever and I don't think that's the case. I think it's again. I think that's a very difficult leap to make. The way that I see it right now is the right is throwing every possible hmm. conceivable art argument that they can against the wall to see what'll stick, uh, because that's really the mode that they're in. It's a you know kind of like emergency danger mode, but I don't see that really working. I don't see that changing the calculus at all. Uh, if anything, the irony to all of this and. Uh, is it makes Trump a focal point for the midterms, which I really don't think Republicans want Trump to be the face of the midterms no. or this. They want to keep the conversation on the economy, on inflation, on gasoline. This does not help them. This moves the conversation to Trump front and center. Yeah. And that does not enable them to win suburban white women or moderate suburban voters. Or in those five percent of white men that left you that or you've the, yeah, the five percent of white get men back in, in, in some way. Especially if Trump decides to declare his candidacy and continues to make public statements and just suck out all the oxygen from the congressional races. That'll yeah. do them no good. In fact, we'll see it'll be in some ways similar to what we saw with the Georgia Senate races in the aftermath of the presidential election. That was the same uh, dichotomy we had there, and we saw how those Senate races went. So I think it would matter less in House races, but I think it could matter in terms of the Senate races in terms of having the effect that Republicans don't want it to have. Well, as somebody who is interested in campaigns, and Brandon, as somebody who, like yourself, who's taken classes in them, it's going to be really interesting to watch how the Republicans take the defund the police message, which failed miserably for the Democrats. Oh, yeah. What kept us really from, from maximizing what we could have done in 2020. But apparently, your old team is going to pick that up and take Hold a shot at beer. it. Yeah. I'd be real interested. What is the Republican version of defund the FBI going to look like? Yeah, I, I what I oh. I don't know. I that's a good question. I I don't know, and I think that that attempt has already been severely, uh, I think, weakened by the attack on the FBI field office in Cincinnati. You had that come the day after all of this, where there was all of this anti FBI sentiment espoused by Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, and then you actually have a guy who's armed to the tilt, mm -hmm. trying to you know scale FBI satellite office who ends up getting shot down in the midst of all of the increased chatter and death threats against FBI agents. Like, that does not look good. And I think, again, if you're talking about, you know, mainstream America and how they view that, they see that as this is an escalation of rhetoric. And, and again, coming from the Law & Order Party, how does the Law & Order Party justify that or rationalize that? And, and 
2024 is still going to be Trump is you and you are Trump. An attack on him is an attack on you. He's your culture or flag bearer. Oh, that w- I'm glad you mentioned that. So that was the other theme to all of this is saying that this attack on him is an attack on the country. It's an attack of, on How? our nation. Who, Brad, who, who is that for? Other than just, is that still the, the, the rally crowd? Is that? Well, I, I don't know who that's for, but it, it has uh, shades of, you know, the, this authoritarian bent that the party has taken. Because that's yeah. typically what you see in autocratic countries where the leader gets associated with the country as a whole. And they're inseparable, whatever, you know. And so the nationalism, the patriotism gets wrapped up solely in the leader and in nothing else and the leader is everything and i it's not coincidence that uh, you know at this last cpac in florida victor orban <laughs> the autocratic like <laughs> leader of hungary was one of the keynote speakers and you know had re- was uh, treated to resounding applause you know especially as he called out gay people and oh, anybody yeah. that yeah. his you know government has fought against so, uh, again, I think it's borrowing from the strongman autocrat playbook is what they're doing. And, and I noticed it immediately because I'm like, this is a real shift. This is a pivot. And it's very different from in the past when Republicans have felt like their presidential candidates or presidents have been attacked or their leaders have been attacked. You know, they have fought back and responded back, but they never attempted to make the claim. I mean, think back to even when George W. Bush was president during 9-11. There were no claims made that this was an attack against him as a person. No. And granted, that was different, but there wasn't this attempt to, like, wrap him up as this, like, supreme being and that he was the country. And that's where they've gone with Trump. And it's just, it's very weird and strange yeah. because it's foreign to us. And again, I can point to any number of countries in Central and South America um, and in Southeast Asia where this is more common, but this is not done in the United States. After everything that man is done, the Republicans are still going to say, find yourself in Trump. Yeah. Look to Trump and find a reflection of yourself in this man. That just, that just stuns me. Remember, Trump himself was the one who said, I alone can fix it. It's the, the idea that he alone is the only person who you know, can be their leader and do all of this. And I want to pivot back to the FBI. I find it extremely striking. If you remember during the summer, June of 2020, so in the aftermath of what happened with George Floyd and the rioting across the country, it was the Republicans who were taking Trump's side, saying that we should send in Mm -hmm. um, ATF, uh, FBI agents, you know, basically national law enforcement, all these cities in the country to take over basically duties because under this guise that somehow local leaders weren't acting as aggressively enough to, to stamp out the rioting. And so Republicans supported the FBI then, yeah, let's send them into cities and let's have them act as as local police forces. Uh, so it's a complete 180 now. Um, the FBI is somehow like we, we need to defund and, them. And how did we get here? I mean, I, I, I get it that the, the Steele dossier was a piece of campaign oppo research that went way too far, and too many people uh, did too many political things with, with that. I, right. I, I get that. I guess what I'm trying to say is if, if you have the – if you're of the mind that Trump has been wronged by the FBI during his presidency, there are some points where you can, can make some arguments in that, in that area – that you wouldn't be completely wrong. That's a massive leap to 
this is a corrupt organization that needs to be ripped out root and branch and completely reimaginated under a Trump administration. Yeah, well, and it fails to factor in that there's different FBI leadership now as well. Not only um, at, you know, in terms of the uh, Attorney General and DOJ, but in terms of the FBI itself, you have Christopher Wray, who Mm -hmm. is the leader, who was actually appointed by Trump originally. Uh, So, (laughs) I mean, you know, this isn't the same as what, you know, you saw at the beginning of the Trump administration and of the Obama administration, Republicans pointing to that. So it's just, it's not valid from that standpoint even. And and I'm going to need somebody on Fox or OAN or, or some outlet to, again, what is the deep state? Is the fact that they, that three people signed off on this and they followed rule of law, is that the representation of the deep state? What form or what, how did the deep state execute this warrant? That, that's what I don't get either. I've heard a lot of this is the swamp. This is what Trump was there to drain. This is the worst of Washington. How? They asked for a warrant. They followed all the rules. They went they through all of the, the processes you need to go They'd execute against anybody else. Checked all the boxes. Can you tell me how? Other than you just don't like politically, potentially, what this is going to do to somebody, that a uh, candidate you like. Where, where, where are we at? We made this massive leap that I, I thought we had gone past that. I didn't think we were going to immediately jump jump to that. Which they did. And there's, there's no did. logic in their arguments. And I guess the scary thing is, and you've seen several pundits espouse this, the, what comes to mind is Laura Ingram saying that if Trump takes the reins of the presidency again, it's the idea about firing everybody in the mm-hmm. FBI who is a part of this, about getting rid of anybody who has a modicum of independence, yeah. and really just installing loyalists to Trump. Now, this is kind of similar to that um, Section 1, uh, blanking out the name, that um, order that Trump had bandied about at the end of his last term, which would have given him permission to replace career bureaucrats yeah. with yeah. Political appointees, yeah. right across all agencies, but they've kind of taken a step further, saying anybody who is a loyal from Trump needs to be cleaned out of the ranks of the FBI and replaced, and go on this uh, mission of grievance against all of these institutions for what they've done to Trump. So it will be this hollowing out yeah. of government, so that anybody who played any kind of role in what happened is just f- fired and is no longer part of the government, essentially. I saw a United States senator this week go on TV and accuse the FBI of planting evidence against a, the former president with absolutely no evidence of that at all. Was this Cruz? Oh, no, this is Rand Paul. Oh. I'm sure Cruz did it too. Yeah. But Rand Paul pulled, pulled that one off. Um, like I said, I've seen a former governor and former presidential candidate call for the ending of the primary system to appoint Trump as their nominee and just just Which throw is insane. off the just throw off the entire democratic process. I mean, just the lunacy that people have have acted with this week. And I think this week, I have always thought Ron DeSantis is not running for president. He's not running for president because what's the point? If he just waits four years, Trump is completely gone. He is yeah. out of the way. And the best thing that Trump, that DeSantis DeSantis is making the calculation that the party, Trump will destroy the party one way or the other. And he's going to do it in the next two to three years. If he happens to get himself elected president again, the Republican Party will be destroyed by his next presidency. There there will be nothing left to it. And there's a very good chance the Republicans will destroy themselves anyway. Just just let them play out their hand. 
if I'm DeSantis, I always have thought DeSantis's strategy is let this fever break, and when it does, everybody in the party will become begging me to put it back together. I'll just wait. And by the side, what's DeSantis? 55, let's say? Yeah. He's got another 40 goddamn years to run, I guess, so he time is, is on his side. And he has another four years as governor, assuming he wins the governor's race this fall. Ron DeSantis sent out—he was the first polit- Republican politician I saw that made a tweet. And very inflammatory tweet. It was, the, it was basically, this was all planted, this is tyranny, this is a banana republic, yeah. burn the DOJ down. Brandon, I'm applying old school political rules here. To me, that is not the tweet of a man running for president. Am I am I just missing this here? Well, I wondered that at first, but at the same time, I also thought, I mean, have we really jumped the shark at this point? So maybe, again, it, that, I think that we could also just be in new territory where none of the old rules apply. So you're telling me Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are more disciplined presidential candidates already than Ron DeSantis? I think in some ways, yes. I think that Ron DeSantis has this posture he's been trying to strike in terms of going to Trump's right to differentiate himself from Trump and saying Trump is at MAGA enough. I'm more MAGA than yeah. Trump. But then he also has to stay in the good graces of uh, Trump's supporters and not anger Trump too much because he needs that same audience to propel him to the yeah. presidency. And so this was kind of the perfect opening for him to insert himself into that mix and really rile up Trump's MAGA base uh, and, and curry favor with them because he needs them ultimately. No, none of the senators, all of them held, held their fire. Nobody put a tweet out that wasn't, hey, we need to look at evidence. We need to, to make sure things are, are happening, at least in the first 24 hours after the raid. They were pretty succinct in, in their response and, and pretty traditional. DeSantis was the only one who broke with that and really came out came out hard. Yeah, and I, I had to pull up uh, DeSantis's tweet just to remind myself. It's classic. So he talks about the weapon escalation of the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. He uses the word regime to describe the Biden administration with a capital R twice in the tweet, which, again, mm-hmm. is inflammatory, and then also ends by saying banana republic. Yeah. So those are two very distinct ways of describing the situation that were very unique to him and garnered a lot of attention. And it's also, I think, very dangerous because it's also somehow saying that the Biden administration is not the uh, legitimate administration, presidential administration, government of this country, if you're referring to it as a regime. And, And so I think that also... That speaks to the whole election denier thing for those that you know refuse to accept Biden as president. But it also speaks to this idea to somehow cast Biden as directly uh, involved in what the DOJ mm-hmm. is doing in FBI and basically say that the administration is comparable to uh, a autocratic government in a third world country, which is where you get the whole banana republic. I mean, it's so multiple layers to unravel there, but I also think that there's a lot packed into that tweet and a lot of different constituencies that he's reaching out to with it. Chuck Grassley, he he decided not to jump on this bandwagon this week. Just for anybody to know, Chuck Grassley, the 88-year-old senator from Iowa who's uh, running for re-election? Yes. Yeah, well, he'll be—is he 88? He'll be, I know he'll be— 86. No, he'll be 91 when he gets re-elected, I believe. Jesus. 
Yeah, I just want to say that again as a point of rage for anybody who might be listening to my voice. The 88-ish year old senator from Iowa. You're right. He's 88. Who's running for re-election for a six-year term. And and so he would be 94 Mm -hmm. at the end of this next six-year term. He decided he didn't want to jump on the Trump uh, raid this week. No, he he jumped on another bandwagon. He went after the IRS because so— because oh, it this must have been just for Republicans. Crazy. Let's just lift off, list off every federal agency that we want to tank, put the people uh, that work for them in, in jeopardy, yeah. and, and basically just create a complete shitstorm. So in the, uh, in the uh, uh, inflation reduction bill, it's hard for me even to say inflation reduction bill. It's, that name is so ridiculous. There's an expansion of, of the IRS staff for auditing. It's an expansion of about 87,000. Again, I, I'm assuming that's the max that they can hire. And the specific goal is they're going to start auditing more high-end individuals. Chuck Grassley, and I believe I have this correct, referred to that as a private federal army. That is not what that... These are not enforcement agents. And actually, the text includes... It's for auditing. It also includes IT staffing within the agency. It includes a wide array of different job functions. So not... And they have gone immediately with this very false and misleading claim that 87,000 enforcement agents are going to be sent out after people. And and Chuck Grassley said that these... Guys would be armed with guns. They're going to be coming knocking on your door. Then then he talked about how much ammo they're buying and how armed these people are. That is absolutely – that is so irresponsible. And for Chuck – what's left for Chuck Grassley? What's (laughs) left? Why? He's been in the Senate since the early 70s. That's what I'm saying. What's the point? (laughs) Grassley has one thing left to do. Pass away. I'm sorry to say – why is he there? So this 88-year-old dude who's been there since the 70s just basically got up and said the IRS has been turned into the president's private army. They're armed to the teeth, and they're coming to you. Right after, some other jackass just told everybody the DOJ and FBI had been weaponized, and what happened to President Trump was illegal and was going to happen to them. And this was after the FBI field office had been attacked. So we see the direct consequences of this rhetoric. (sighs) Brandon, what's the future of the FBI? Let's game this out. What happens if a a Republican, any Republican, takes the presidency in 2024? What happens to the FBI? Well, I think there's going to be an attempt to completely uh, just uh, wipe the agency clean of any expertise and talent. There's going to be this attempt to put in loyalist uh, political uh, uh, yes men and women who are going to be politically aligned with the party and the administration. There's a lot to be said. It really depends upon the level of crazy and and also the pushback by Congress and who has control of both branches of Congress. But all you have to do is listen to what they're saying now. And again, it's a 180 from what they were saying about the FBI just, you know, two years ago. And so now we're we're here but it does it makes me very fearful because the FBI there have been a lot of reforms uh, particularly since the since Watergate especially mm-hmm. to uh, make the FBI and DOJ more independent uh, you know and that's why you have a 10 year term uh, for FBI you know, director which you didn't have before has the FBI director ever been fired I'm I'm assuming one has, but it's a pretty political process to get an FDI director run out. 
Yeah, it, it is, and it's very difficult. I don't know that one has been fired. That's a very good question. I, I don't know. Because, you know, there's uh, the most controversial FBI director was Hoover, yeah. and he served for, you know, what, 40, 50 years? He, he kind of made the place, so he just kind of did whatever he wanted. Well, and a lot of presidents were afraid of him. So, yeah, and you no, know, no one was going to go in no and tell him no. No one wanted to cross him. Yeah. But but partially because of what happened with Hoover is there is this 10-year term so that you wouldn't be able to have an FBI director serve and definitely like that. But there's a lot of checks and balances in the system now. There's this, this whole attempt, and the FBI had actually built up this profile of being a fairly kind of independent, heads-down organization, and all of that now seems to be crumbling with the Republicans attempting to dismantle that image completely. It's it's really fascinating to me, and that's why you know one person who I haven't heard speak out, which I would really be interested to see what he has to say, is Bill Barr. Um, with all of this going on, why would you be interested in what Bill Barr would have to say? Well, only because this was a guy who is an agency guy uh, who v- believes very strongly in the centralized power of DOJ and FBI, and I, I just it would be interesting to me how he would either spin this or attempt to deflect. I would just be curious. Okay. I I thought, okay. I thought you were going like a, like, like a positive that hear from Bill Barr. You're just interested in what spin he's going to put on it. Yeah. I mean, because again, he is one of those who I think has spoken out of both sides of his mouth, obviously. Constantly. And so I would just be curious, like, how does he, if he's put on a hot seat and he gets intense question over this, how does he, play himself i mean how does he just try to you know spin the entire situation i would just be curious to see because i mean he was there he knew the players on on the way over i was thinking that are are we getting ready to move into a period that looks more like the night of 1960s more civil unrest yeah no trust in, in in institutions and a culture that is 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 changing and and is going to change there's no way coming out of the fifties that you knew that was going to hold something culturally major culture changes was going to happen. It, it feels like we're, we're kind of lining ourselves up for a repeat of that decade in those types of areas, big cultural change, big, big political change, um, economic change. And when we get out of this decade, everything's going to look different. The thing that I was thinking about is, the things that fueled that type of change in protest in the 60s were civil rights for African Americans, mm-hmm. women, LBGTQ, and the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Those are two pretty American things. You know, saying, hey, this war is not where we need to be. We, 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 we should not be building this type of, of, if you want to call it, colony or whatever you want to say. Whatever we were doing in Central Asia, it was a civil war. Let's back out. We're, we're done. There's a history of, of talking out and standing up in civil unrest against unpopular wars in this country and every country that's ever existed. Right, it's just like there is for the fight for Correct. equality and expansion of civil yes. rights. The, the fight for equality was we, we need to make the Constitution full. We need to take those rights and extend them to the people that have historically been denied, and we need to live up to the promise of the Constitution. Right. That was a pretty American thing. And there's lots of people that did horrible things in, in pursuit of those two goals. If we're going through a period of civil and political and social unrest now, what's really driving this? I really couldn't tell you. What, what really is happening? What is the underlying condition that's pushing all of this forward? In the 60s, you had these big things you could point to and say, yeah, I get how an unpopular foreign war is going to drive political and social change. 
I get it how people, you know, standing up for their rights is going to drive it. What's driving this now and driving it to what? Where are we, where are we going with this? And who's driving? This can't be all about Trump still. <coughs> this has to be about grievance and change and people being left behind and, and things like that. But are we just going to continue to let the negativity of those issues be what propels this forward? And it looks like until Trump leaves the Republican Party or the Republican Party throws him out, at least on a, on a political scale, I don't see where – it doesn't feel like there's anything positive driving all of this change. Like in the 60s, at least the goals were lofty. Right. What's the goal now? To elect Trump as a Viktor Orban-style dictator? To tear down the FBI? What, what, what is the goal? Well, and I think – so the Trump cult of personality is just one symptom or one factor of a greater issue, which I think is that we've become a nation of nations. So there's been a lot of good articles about this, but the fact that we have multiple nations now within our country, and whereas before we have had polarization that has increased, now that polarization is defined by geographical boundaries. You have, yeah. you know, a uh, for we've had the last five presidential elections have been decided under fifty-five percent of the vote, which is a departure from you know yeah. the thirty years when, before when that. Reagan won every state except one, right? Or you go back to LBJ. I mean, yeah. both sides, and then you also have this dynamic now where um, there it, it almost never happens. I, I mean, I remember writing my. Uh, undergrad political science thesis on split ticket voting. So voters that vote for president on one ballot, uh, one party, and then they're a member of Congress on another part from another party. That hardly ever happens anymore. We're at a state of play now where nobody split ticket votes anymore. We used to have plenty of split ticket outcomes across states in the country mm-hmm. going back presidential elections. That's unheard of. That doesn't happen anymore. And states have become um, extremely polarized, and it leads to this increase in talk. And so I don't think it's accidental that you have Texas passing uh, their GOP passing this succession you know, resolution. <laughs> or you have Arizona on the eve of the Trump raid. You had um, the candidate for governor, the Republican yeah, candidate Lake. for governor of Arizona, Kerry Lake, um, supporting um, succession on behalf of Arizona. Yeah. And so this is being thrown out more and more by the Republican Party's leading candidates for office. So it gets us to a point of, you know, I couldn't imagine like there being a fracture or war among or a civil war or something akin to that. But when you have enough people that keep talking about it, that keep talking about having their state succeed, at some point you have to ask, like, how serious is this? And even if they are not serious, there are people who listen to them who are serious and will take it seriously. Yeah. I, I was listening to something that Charlie Kirk did over the summer when that guy stood up at a, I think it was a college speech and asked, when do we start shooting people? Oh, yeah. You keep uh. talking about what we have to do. When is it time to start being violent? And I think there's a lot of people that are getting dangerously close to that. To uh, that level, yeah. To that line. And you notice that he was very careful in how he responded to that. Oh, yeah. Char- like, Charlie Kirk's an idiot. He's he didn't just shoot it down as no. out of bounds. I mean, no. he, he was very gingerly in how you know he danced around that. What's the next step in this process? What, what's the next shoe that drops as it 
pertains to this raid. You have Andy McCarthy out there, who I really like, listen to every week. He's a great, um, great resource National for, Review. for um, conservative, political, and legal issues. He is still pushing. This was all a pretext just to raid Trump's house for January 6th. I think that's horribly that's irresponsible. Super, uh, but where where does this go? Are are they arrest warrant next? Well, I, I mean, I don't think that they're doing this if they're not going to bring charges because I think, again, you know, notwithstanding the hyperbole by the the right, like this is significant though to have a former president yes. search warrant. We've never had that in our history, and you don't get to this point unless those that are doing it have very. Re, uh, credible intelligence and evidence that this is so egregious that it warrants taking this step and going full board in terms of actually yeah. bringing charges against the former president. So I, I don't see how you don't do that if you are willing to take this step to begin with. Yeah. And then taking the unprecedented step of unsealing the warrant, um, which I think had to be done at that point, yeah. uh, but but taking that step as well. So the trajectory of this, I think, is we get to charges. The question is when, because we all know, too, that these investigations can drag out and it can be a long lapse of time before you actually get an indictment. No, I bet that indictment's going to come around sometime around October 15th. Oh, October surprise. Puts us right in the middle of the October surprise season for the old midterm race. Man, that's going to be crazy. That would would be... I I, I agree. You don't take this step unless you know eventually you're going to charge. Yeah. And maybe that's why some of the um, responses got so loony so crazy, is that they know that, hey, this is... This is step one. And I heard somebody explaining that there's, there's like a 99% if a warrant is raided that charges follow. It, it's the logical next step because you've already identified the crime. You think there's evidence there. Right. Now you're going to confirm that by gathering the evidence. So it feels like there's a charge coming next. And that's uh, – I don't know where we're going to be at that point. Yeah. No, I, it does. And I think – and again, if we think that the reaction is crazy now – just white. <laughs> maybe, yeah, there, there's no good way to it. I'm like, there, maybe, there's a, maybe there's some benefit in getting some of the crazy out now, but no, it's, it's going to be a shame. And I, I do think we have to be prepared as this process moves forward that there are going to be increasing yeah. numbers of sporadic violent incidents that happen, like the one we saw last week, that those are going to become more frequent, and, and many of them will be lone wolf perpetrators like that, that man, but this is going to become more and more frequent. And again, it points to the just inherent irresponsibility by the right-wing echo chamber, because these people are radicalized, not unlike the radicalization we saw during the early to Mm mid-2000s with al-Qaeda and with uh, ISIS over uh, online. Uh, You know, the, the web has an ability to uh, to really radicalize people uh, across different ideologies, and we're seeing that play out now. And you know, the with the far right and with the Trump personality cult. Well, there's a guy today who I think at like 4 a.m. crashed his car into a barricade around the Capitol. Yeah, I haven't read that story yet. And then just killed happened. himself when the cops approached him. So there's no evidence that that was linked to this, but but we'll it's know not a far soon leap. enough. Yeah, you never know. Solomon Rushdie got stabbed. At a speech he was giving, I believe it was at a university in inside New York City. Yes, yeah. That made me more sad than I thought it would make. 
This is somebody who's had a, a fatwa, a religious Damn. edict for his death out on him from Iran for decades, I think going back to the 80s. And he had to flee Iran. He has lived in the U.S. and Europe since then. He is a scholar, an academic. Um, so he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses, which was highly critical of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran. And so um, he has faced numerous death threats and assassination attempts throughout his life. And so it's just it's astonishing you get to this point in this day and age where he's given a speech and he's rushed yeah. by this 25-year-old radical um, who uh, stabbed him multiple times in the neck. And I think he just was able to get off a ventilator, but he's going to have yeah. this long road to recovery. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's going to lose his eye. And there was no security at the event either. It's not yeah. like they ch- had metal detectors or anything like that. It was literally just walk in. And I'd read that a translator of his book has been killed. Oh, more and- than one. So you have the Japanese, um, uh, the Japanese translator who actually was the narrator for the audiobook version who was killed. And, uh, you have the Norwegian geez. publisher who was killed. You have an Italian publisher of the book who was killed. So multiple people connected with the book's translations into multiple languages have been either killed or attacked. The Iranians on Iranian state TV celebrated this, saw this as a good thing, that this was an example of, of punishment delayed, but punishment delivered. What gets me is I understand that the Democrats sometimes have a hard time understanding the concept that you have to take the world as it is. And sometimes you got to do things with bad people that you don't want to do, but that's just the way it is. And it seems like we've taken that, that approach with Iran in some ways, much of the Middle East. Yeah. And that... And it, uh, while the week that Solomon Rushdie is is attacked on stage, the Biden administration is openly talking to Iran about getting back into the the JPO, ASC, whatever the Iran deal the was, and bringing the Iranians back into the international community. I generally support that, but God, it just sucks when it's like really. Well, really? I know we just don't this have is any who options because we, we just don't have a whole lot. Of I mean, options. just like I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia with MBS. I yeah. mean, we know, you know that he murders many people, um, let alone that um, uh, Kosogi, the New York Times reporter. But it's this realist idea, idea that we just don't, we have very few options. And so it's either engage or don't engage, and there's ramifications from not engaging. Yeah. And there are parts culturally in the world that are extremely different than us. And we have to either accept that and accept what that means and move on, or... Don't do business with these people. Right. I doubt anything changes. I doubt this this attack on him changes anything with our relationship with Iran. But it's just a, it's just another indicator that there are times when you've got to do things with allies that you don't want, but you really don't have don't have an option that are extremely unpleasant or anathema to our values. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll rephrase. We we could we could do something about this. Do you want gas to be seven bucks a gallon? That that's that's just the only thing you have to do. We could stop right. messing with this tomorrow if we wanted to. We just have to be able to say we'll deal with the economic fallout of changing our relationship with the Middle East. And as we've just seen by gas prices, no one's gonna no one's gonna vote go vote for that. No. What is what are you paying for gas these days? I think I last filled up at three. 49, 340, yeah. something around there. I filled up the car, the, our, our, uh, the truck the other day, and it was like 56 bucks. And it's like, that's the first time that's been out of the, 
the 60s, 70s, and 80s in, in quite, yeah. quite some time. Is there a gas prices escalated quickly, made people mad very quickly? Right. Is there, does it work in the opposite direction? Is there an opportunity for Biden and the Dems to, as gas prices fall, to quickly turn that into positive uh, political feelings as we, we really get into midterm season? I think so, as the downturn continues. We all know that gas prices never de-escalate as fast as they rise, though. It no. tends to be slower. So I think we have a little ways to go before you can really tout that success. But I, I think you'll be able to. There's also, I mean, there's also the silver linings with the economy in terms of employment still. So, you know, despite we're in this weird area with inflation being extremely high and you have some uh, sectors of the economy bracing or thinking there's a recession pretty closely ahead, the uh, employment picture doesn't seem to point to that at all. And I keep telling people the reason that none of these economic indicators are lining up is you have to remember that we had this completely artificial and arbitrary uh, reduction in the economy caused by COVID. Like that was not a normal economic yeah. downturn. That was artificially the government coming in and saying we are going to uh, basically just uh, tighten the economy. We're going to reduce output. And so that, because that was not normal and there wasn't any normal way that that really unfolds, we were in this just elongated process of decoupling from that. And we're going to see these weird indicators that yeah. really don't line up because, you know, that was non-traditional and, 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 and not, uh, standard economics. And so getting out of that is going to be very, um, untraditional as well. We're going to unconventional, I should say. And so I think you can't lose sight of that. So I think it's not very surprising that we see all these sometimes indicators that are pointing in opposite directions, you know, positive and negative at the same time, because, you know, what, what happened we had never taken action that was that like that. I mean, it was unprecedented, um, you know, with with COVID. There's been times that we have, you know, done rate hikes or dropped the interest rate, mm -hmm. um, taken response, when, for example, the Great Recession. But when you retract the entire national economy yeah. all at once due to um, a virus, I mean, that's there, there's just no way to calculate what that impact is going to be years and, down the road. And your two main supplier of goods, China and India, keep coming and going offline yes. over a, a 12 to 14 month period. And I mean, China continues to have draconian lockdowns yeah. every time they have a COVID outbreak. Because they, they don't have a vaccine that works and yeah. they won't use anybody else's. That's exactly right. I, I think inflation is naturally going to fall. But before the Democrats get too excited about how we're going to weave this tail into, into midterm magic, did you see Biden try to try to explain inflation for the month of July when he said it oh, was no. zero? The <laughs> and people, I mean, just, this is my point. In order to turn the, the, the dropping inflation, which is naturally going to happen, like you talked about, as more things come online and stay online, the natural byproduct of that will be prices start to fall. Yeah. Point to me on the Democratic side who can come up with a coherent political midterm communication strategy around that that accurately tells people what's happening, what our role was, and turns it into positive feeling. We're all waiting. Good luck. Yeah. There's no, there, there's no way. So we'll get some residual bump off of it, but I don't – that would require us showing political skill and, and that we've been down that road too many times to think the Democrats can make big hay off that. So yep. who knows? Agreed. 
It's time for the fun time, Brandon. Did you do anything fun? Have you done anything fun this week? Just hiding out in the house because it's so damn hot here? Yeah, yeah, no, it is very hot. So, no, I've, I've done a lot this weekend. Um, so I was traveling for work this last week and got back Friday evening How's from work Ohio. travel going? Is oh, it pretty good. Pretty is it? Does it feel back to normal ish, or is it? It still does. High? Yeah, I mean the the planes are crowded, and, and I mean yeah. seats are taken. It does. I mean the airports feel like back to normal, and so we're in this area. You know, area now where the airlines are trying to catch up. I mean, there's staffing shortages and my flight back was delayed 20 minutes getting off the tarmac because we didn't have a pilot or a co-pilot. And so they brought a pilot and co-pilot who had their day off from PTO in to be able to fly our plane. (laughs) I mean, who, how are we making pilots? That's a great question. I just assumed all pilots came from the military. I don't think that's correct. No, I mean, but how are we pre- how are we replacing people that are retiring as commercial airline pilots? Well, oh. I mean, they're finally trying to ramp that up, but I mean, of course, that takes years. So yeah. you know, we're years behind. But part of the problem was it was so misguided. But during the pandemic, and again, I'm going back the the contraction of the economy and everything that led to was artificial. We knew it was temporary. We knew that it yes. was a one time, but everything was going to come back. This wasn't going to be the new normal forever. But yet you had airlines that took that opportunity to offer early retirement and buyouts yeah. to many pilots. Very short time. So you had this unheard of massive number of pilots that took early retirement and so um, down to an all-time low of actual pilots and so now they're hurting because they offered all those pilots early retirement which was a huge mistake yeah and you can't there's no quick fix to that no that has to work itself out over time so we've traveled a couple times this summer and it's been decent but I don't know. I feel lucky because I I know many others that have had like horror stories about delays and then not being able to get on flights for multiple days after that and, you know, having to completely reschedule other plans that they had. When the early to mid 90s, when we worked together, business travel was fun. Business travel was considered kind of a perk at that point. Now, I can't. I mean, everybody, it's just like, oh, good God, you've (laughs) got to be kidding me. That I got to go back. Yeah. I've got a couple of friends that are dealing with the, the going back into the office a couple of days a week. Oh, Just okay. starting that now. And they're still getting still a little, back to that, still yeah. little adjustment back to it. So, but it's still amazing that how, how many people have their day-to-day lives still impacted by COVID. Oh, completely. We all well, do. I mean, even the client on site that I went to in Columbus, it's, uh, you know, large office buildings that are mostly vacant still. So, I mean, you could hear crickets. They're very quiet because yeah. the only time employees are there is if they choose to have meetings in person with other teams there or, you know, they have a reason and they, you know, call another employee up and let's go and get together in front of a whiteboard and do this. And so it's, it's just it's a very weird dynamic because you have these huge office buildings yeah. that are full of people. When, when, does the, when, when does that all stop? When does the person just come in and say, hey, guess what? Everyone's back in the space we're paying for. I mean, eventually over the next couple of years, that's going to happen. Oh, that everybody comes back? Because Well, I don't think so. Well, because it, the company is like, again, this was a forced change that happened spontaneously two and a half years ago. Well, it, it We've was. made adjustments to it, but this organization doesn't run remotely. Well, but the problem is there are enough organizations now that have gone to a full... 
yeah. permanent remote status or one that allows for that. So the competition is as such that companies can go back to being fully on site, but they're going to lose people. And so they have to just somehow be able to balance that they might have somewhat of a brain drain, depending on yeah. what the positions are uh, with that. Because I, I don't think there's ever going to be a full go back. If anything, I think we're going to be in this new normal where there's going to be more hybrid work, where it's, you know, you can have a couple days off and then you work a few days in the office. But there's going to be, I think, much more flexibility than we had before, just based on what we saw in the pandemic. I think that's going to be one of the great changes to work culture that is going to last. It's going to be really interesting in like 2030, 2035, when studies start coming out with, you know, with some, some years behind them to really kind of understand how that impacted work and what, yeah. what COVID's final impact was. There's but. a big effort right now among some co- companies to go to a four-day work week. Uh, there was this uh, article in the Wall Street Journal about that and another one in Forbes. And there's been some a few big companies that have done that. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the big talk right now in many circles is a cultural but how, how shift. How does that, that work if you're if you're a non hourly employee? I mean, work hours or whatever your boss decides they are. Really, I mean, I don't, I don't get that. I don't four day work week. That that's irrelevant. If it's a Friday at three o'clock and I need something, I'm calling you. Just like it, what I'm saying is, my history of work has been when something needed to get done. I had to do it it regardless regardless of what day it was or the time of the week. Are we saying that that's changed and we're only doing business from 8 to 5, Monday through Thursday? I'm all in on that. I think that's a fantastic idea, but I don't think that's what a four-day week means. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd have to read more deeply into some of the intent behind it. Yeah, I I keep wanting to ask people, so are what you're saying is you're going to stop emailing me at 8 8, (laughs) 8 p.m. and expecting a response? Is that what you're – because that's very different. Then saying yes. we're shifting to a four. So what are we actually saying? That that's what I can't. That's what well, I can't get a beat on. I do know a lot of companies have already gone the softer pivot to just uh, canceling all meetings on Fridays, making sure that. Uh, employees' calendars are free for meetings. Yeah. That there isn't any, you know, major, you know, request or big things going on to make the Friday be more of a transition into the weekend, so that you're not, you know, just have a, you know, packed schedule of all these yeah. different things that you have to do and uh, meetings you have to attend. So that seems to become has become more standard. Is just making Fridays lighter in terms yeah. of work. I'm all for a four day work week. I just. Most people I talk to that say, I really enjoy working from home. It gives me a lot of more flexibility. And, but I always ask them, do you work less? Are you less stressed? Right. Are you more happy with your job? Are you more satisfied with what you're doing? A lot of times those answers get different, different. Those questions get different answers. So. Yeah, those are really the yeah. questions that need to be asked. All right, that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.